Hi everyone, Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. Did you know that Central Park is not only the site of 500 million years of geologic history, but that it also cost more to build than to buy Alaska? Today we're going to explore the geologic history of Manhattan's backyard. Have you ever stared out your window and wondered what interesting secrets lay just beneath the soil? Don't let the Kentucky bluegrass and your mother's geraniums fool you. There is exciting geology, even in your backyard. In this podcast, we explore the amazing discoveries and geologic events that happened right in someone's backyard. In this episode, we're playing a bit loose with the term backyard, unless you're living on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Over 8 million people call Central Park their backyard. Central Park includes over 840 acres of parklands on the Isle of Manhattan and was established in 1857. Property values in Manhattan range from about $500 to over $10,000 per square foot, with an average of nearly $1,800 per square foot or around $170 per square meter making the land of Central Park worth in excess of $66 billion, although there are some that argue that this could be significantly higher. Despite this, and lucky for New Yorkers and the tens of millions of visitors, Central Park has become such an integral part of the city that no one would seriously entertain the possibility of replacing the park with high-rise buildings. The history of Central Park is fascinating, and it all began in 1955 when New York City's population had quadrupled in less than 30 years. As the city expanded northward, people were naturally drawn to the few open spaces for relaxation and recreation. At the time, the most common open spaces were cemeteries, and it was becoming increasingly clear that using cemeteries for recreation was just not sustainable. Many of the city's elite were calling for the construction of a new large park in Manhattan. And through numerous controversial decisions, the city settled on a wide tract of land right in the middle of Manhattan Island. The problem was, this area was home to a number of villages that were built by recently freed blacks and recently arrived Irish and German immigrants. Nearly 1,600 people were evicted under eminent domain to make way for the park. It is incredibly unfair that these racially integrated middle and working class communities were simply evicted because the wealthy oligarchs of Greenwich Village wanted a large manicured park. Not just a large manicured park, but the largest manicured park the country had ever seen. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Central Park was built for the same price as the United States government purchased Alaska from Russia just a few years later. The construction of Central Park included the blasting and removal of over 5 million cubic feet or 140,000 cubic meters of stone and earth. More gunpowder was used in the blasting of Central Park than was used during the entire Battle of Gettysburg, where over 170,000 soldiers fought for three days during the American Civil War. To give some perspective on how much material was removed, 
If you were to spread the material removed for the construction of Central Park one foot deep or about 30 centimeters deep, it would cover over 30 soccer pitches or 45 football fields. During my few visits to New York City, I've always made time to visit Central Park. I've spent hours exploring the lesser traveled paths and hidden gems. It probably isn't any surprise that my favorite parts of the park are the places where the rocks stick up out of the well-manicured grass. The schists of Central Park are part of the Cambral Ordovician sediments that were deposited in the Iapetus Ocean and then later deformed and metamorphosed during the formation of Pangaea. There are two dominant lithological units separated by a major thrust fault known as the Cameron Line. In the northern part of the park, north of about 90th Street, is the Manhattan Schist that was originally sandstones and shales deposited on the continental margin of Paleozoic North America. And then thrust on top of the Manhattan Schist, found in the southern part of the park, is the Heartland Formation that was originally fine-grained shale that was deposited in the deep waters of the Iapetus Ocean. Finding the deeper water sediment thrust on top of the shallow water continental margin sediments is a common relationship in orogenic belts, simply because the deeper water sediments arrive at the collision zone first, and are then metamorphosed and thrust on top of the shallow water sediments deposited closer to the continental margin. And the tectonic activity responsible for this deformation and metamorphism is known as the taconic orogeny that occurred as a chain of volcanoes slammed into the eastern margin of what is now North America during the Ordovician. Something similar to the taconic orogeny is currently happening in Australia as the Indonesian volcanic chains collide with the northern margin of Australia. Actually, it's Australia that is colliding with Indonesia as Australia moves northward, similar to how India moved northward and collided with Asia over 50 million years ago. So now imagine in your mind a map of Oceania and Southeast Asia. A nearly unbroken chain of volcanoes stretches from the North Island of New Zealand northward to Tonga where it takes a left turn and continues to the west until Papua New Guinea. So now jump to Southeast Asia where we have the islands of Sumatra and Java of Indonesia that are part of the Sunda Arc and follow this further to the east through the Banda Arc to the west side of Papua New Guinea. So if you look at a map of Papua New Guinea, you'll notice a mountain chain that bisects the island from east to west that then meets up with these two chains of volcanoes on the east and west side of Papua New Guinea. The crust south of these mountains of Papua New Guinea are part of the Australian continent, and the crust north of these mountains is part of the Pacific Plate. So as the northernmost edge of Australia, which is now the southern half of Papua New Guinea, collided with the long chain of volcanoes stretching from New Zealand all the way to Indonesia, these volcanoes were snuffed out and the crust was crumpled into this long mountain chain that bisects the island of Papua New Guinea. This is effectively the same thing that happened 450 million years ago along the eastern margin of North America. Today, we can find the ancient volcanic chain that collided with North America, stretching from the Appalachians in the Carolinas all the way up to Newfoundland. 
And as Manhattan is right in the middle of this belt, it's not hard to see the evidence of orogeny. Throughout Central Park, there are a number of localities where the deformed schists are exposed. While places like Rat Rock and Umpire Rock are popular sites for the boulderers and the tourists, my favorite location is Hearn's Head, which is just steps away from the American Museum of Natural History. So after regaling yourself with the amazing wonders of the natural world in the museum, take a short walk to Hearn's Head where you can find some amazing exposures of the Manhattan schist and some enigmatic granitoids. The schists at Hearn's Head are pretty typical metamorphose shale with a mineral assemblage of quartz, biotite, muscovite, garnet, and just a little bit of kyanite. What is great about this mineral assemblage is that we can use the chemistry of these minerals to estimate the pressure and temperature of peak metamorphism through what is called conventional thermobarometry. As shale is metamorphosed and biot and garnet are in equilibrium, the ratio between magnesium and iron in these two minerals will vary as a function of temperature. This means that if we know how much magnesium and iron are in both the biotite and the garnet, we can use these to estimate the temperature of metamorphism. And then a similar process can be done to estimate the pressure, but this time using the chemistry of plagioclase, garnet, kyanite, and quartz. So using these relatively simple tools, we can estimate the peak metamorphic conditions of the Manhattan schist as being approximately 1,000 megapascals and 700 degrees Celsius. So then we can recreate a story where these coastal sediments were carried to 33-ish kilometers deep and metamorphosed to kyanite-grade garnet biotite schists where they were later brought to the surface as the collision came to an end. But now, that wasn't the end of the story. These rocks were likely buried under a thin veneer of sediment throughout the Mesozoic and most of the Cenozoic until a recent episode of Pleistocene glaciation. Evidence of this glaciation is found throughout Central Park with uh, glacial striations that have a remarkable consistent direction or showing us the direction of glacial flow from the northwest down to the southeast. For anyone who has flown to New York City, one of the fascinating things about Manhattan is the geographic distribution of high-rise buildings. There are lots of high-rises in downtown south of about Canal Street, and then there's lots of high-rises north in the Flatiron District up towards Central Park. But between Canal Street and around 23rd Street, there are relatively few tall buildings. On my first visit to Manhattan, I was told that the dearth of tall buildings between Canal and 23rd was because the depth of bedrock was much deeper in that part of Manhattan and that the depth of bedrock was anti-correlated with building height. So, for example, shallow bedrock leads to higher buildings because it's easier to build larger, deeper foundations when the bedrock is relatively shallow. But when you have really deep bedrock, it makes it more difficult to build high-rise buildings because it just takes more effort to reach the bedrock to build those foundations. 
However, it turns out that the truth is a bit more complicated than simple depth to bedrock. A fascinating study published in the Journal of Economic History, researchers from Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and Fordham University in the Bronx took the measured depth to bedrock of buildings constructed between 1890 and 1915 and found that the depth of bedrock actually increases from about 8 meters near Bowling Green in the far south of Manhattan to a maximum of 50 meters right around Canal Street. And then the depth of bedrock decreases back to less than 10 meters north of 23rd Street. So what's fascinating is that the anti-correlation of bedrock to the location of skyscrapers only holds true north of 23rd Street where the bedrock is actually quite shallow at less than 10 meters deep. But the high-rise buildings south of Canal Street were actually built in locations where the bedrock increases in depth from 10 meters all the way up to 45 meters. From this, we can hypothesize that although it may be easier to build a skyscraper in a location with shallow bedrock, the depth to bedrock really doesn't affect the position of skyscrapers in New York City. In fact, building skyscrapers south of Canal Street in the early 20th century was quite a treacherous venture, and not just because of the depth to bedrock. Because just below the soil is a thick layer of sand and gravel. This, however, wasn't the problem. It was the fact that the sand and gravel was saturated with water. This proved to be a major problem for developers in Lower Manhattan. For as they would dig out the sand for the building's foundations, the wet sand and gravel would just flow right back into the hole. So the solution was an engineering marvel at the time. And what they did is they made what are called caissons, also known as sand hogs, which are effectively a large cube box with no floor, just sitting on the sand. Workers would then get inside the caissons and would dig up the water-saturated sand and gravel, pass it up through chutes to the surface. And as they would dig, the, the sand hog would slowly sink. And they would continue to do this until they reached the bedrock. Now, mind you, this was at nearly 50 meters in some places. And once all the sand had been removed, the Cassian would then be filled with concrete and would act as the primary foundation for the buildings. So then, why were there no high-rises built between Canal Street and 23rd Street, where the depth of bedrock gets increasingly shallow? Well, it turns out that the area between Canal and 23rd were neighborhoods with the highest density of low-income immigrants. In these neighborhoods, there just wasn't any money to build anything but five-story tenement buildings for poor immigrants, so there wasn't any economic reason to build skyscrapers between Canal and 23rd. So the true history of Manhattan's skyline is indeed influenced by geology in that it posed some unique challenges, but in the end, it was money that ruled the day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends, students, or professors. Backyard Geology is a part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Mm -hmm.